My name is Andrea Larson, and I'm one of the assisting pastors here at New Hope. And I'm happy to participate in this series. For you guys who are visiting, we are studying the Jesus Storybook Bible. And you'd say, why are you doing a kid book? It's a beautiful kid book. We got one for our newest grandson just lately, but it's a profound book too. And all the stories, what it says is every story whispers his name. The entire Bible is pointing always to Jesus. And today's story is no different. Last week, Pastor James had us in Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, the story of how God wants us to flourish following his rules. And now we're going to follow God's people to the promised land where they've just decided that they're kind of tired of being weird and different than everybody else, right? God has given them judges who are to lead them and help them obey, but they decide they want a king, like we just heard. They want a flesh and blood king, not this, you know, kind of vague, gee, you're in a cloud, you're in the smoke, you're somewhere. We want a king like everyone else has. We're going to look at why we also want to be like everyone else. And we want to follow the ways of the world instead of following the only true King Jesus. And we're going to also look at how God does things so differently than we would have thought. His ways are higher than our ways. So it's our routine practice to stand and read the scripture. It's a long one, so I'm going to read the big parts and you read the parts that are in bold. Everyone up. 1 Samuel 8, as Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him. You are now old, and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Well, Samuel was displeased with their request, and he went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they're rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they're giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plow in his fields and harvest his crops, and some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it among his officers and attendants. He will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He'll demand a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. When that day comes, you'll beg for relief from this king you are demanding, but then the Lord will not help you. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. 
We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord replied, do as they say, give them a king. Then Samuel agreed and sent the people home. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we come before you today with your word and what you have to say to us. Lord, we want to learn more about your ways, your ways that are so much higher than our ways. I ask that you would take my ordinary words and translate them to each heart here by your spirit, that you would tell each person exactly what they needed to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, now, when you hear that scripture and you read it, you think, yeah, that's not going to go well. That's not going to go right. So did you ever have one of those times in your life where you really, really wanted something and you didn't get it? Or maybe another time in your life where you really wanted something and you got it and then it didn't turn out at all like you thought. So when I was 15, quite a while ago, right, I got a driver's permit. And I was so excited that I could get my license when I was 16. That was the thing back in the 70s, right? Is that still a thing? Who got their license on their 16th birthday? Raise their hand. There's a some, some. My husband got a pilot's license on his 16th birthday. <laughs> I, I got to put my hand down because the way it worked out for me is when I said, oh, I want to get my license on my 16th birthday. There's my mama right there. They said, no way. No how, absolutely not happening. Now, before you think my mom is a terrible person, you're like, why were these parents so hard-hearted, wouldn't let their kid get a license? Because my birthday is February 4th, and we lived in Chicago. <laughs> you got it. Ice, snow, slush, mess. They're like, not only are you not getting your license, but you won't be doing any driving till things get better. Now, my parents didn't want me not to have a license, and in the summer I did get my license. They were just trying to keep me successful and safe in my driving efforts, right? This is kind of the same thing with Israel wanting a king. God didn't want Israel never to have a king, but they wanted it for such the wrong reason. So I think we can relate to all kinds of situations where we convince ourselves that we know what's best for our own lives, right? And a lot of us are really, really good at convincing ourselves that, you know, the Lord agrees with us. Yes, he does. In Isaiah 55, it says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And in Proverbs 16, 9, it says, the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And if you needed even one more, there's plenty more. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We think we know what we're doing. As a society and even in the church, and I don't mean just New Hope, I mean the big C church, We've stopped asking for wise counsel, much less listening to it. We think our thoughts are right in line with the Lord's thoughts. We all have access to so much information. 
that we convince ourselves that we are experts at just about everything. If you don't believe me, go to Facebook, look at the comments, and you will see that the majority of the world knows how to run everything in the government. I know how to run a pandemic that's never been seen in the history of the world, but I would know better. People think they know everything, and this is a problem. We skip our reading of the word where, where we have our grounding for truth. A lot of people avoid fellowship with other believers or, you know, I'm not going to talk to the pastor because we don't want anybody to call and to question our decisions. But we're sure that when we pray in those few minutes that we connect with the Lord, he definitely agrees with my thoughts and my ideas because we want to fashion our own futures. And then we're surprised. When things go awry, what happened? Why did that go so badly? Huh. So let's get back to those Israelites who want to fashion their own future. I'm going to give you a little bit of history here. When Pastor James spoke last week, we were at Moses and the Ten Commandments. And we know after that that Moses and the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years. And the reason why they had to wander is because they had lack of faith and disobedience, so only the new generation was allowed to go into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. Now Joshua obeyed the Lord's commands even when it was, might we say, ridiculous, silly, illogical. The Battle of Jericho, march around the town 13 times and then shout, okay, but they did it. And they were victorious, right? They didn't rely on themselves and what they thought was right. They relied on what God said to do and they were given the victory. But time went on and the Israelites grew complacent in their obedience. So then there were 300 years of back and forth, back and forth, periods of time when they were like, Oh, God, help us, help us, we're in trouble, right? God was in the front of their mind to, oh, you know, things are going pretty well. We can put God on the back burner here. Just a whole long time of goofing up and then crying out for help. Sound familiar? Anybody else do that besides me? Goof up. Oh, God, where are you? Where are you? Well, where were you when I was trying to give you some wise counsel? Not listening to his ways, right? Over and over, God sent the Israelites judges. Now, these leaders weren't perfect, but they led them out of their sticky situations again and again. So during this entire period of time, the Israelites didn't have a regular standing army. So when they say they went to battle, they just sort of cough up a militia. Okay, everybody, we're going to fight the Midianites or the Solonites or the whoeverites, right? And they would just gather up an army. They had no king, no president, nothing like that. They were living in what is called a theocracy. The, like theology, theo, theo is God, comes from a Greek word meaning rule of God, reflecting the view that God himself is the head of state, right? Now, as believers, we all can and should live under a theocracy of the heart, where we put God first and his laws above our worldly system. That doesn't mean you don't pay taxes, by the way. <laughs> 
just means that God's ways are the first ways in your mind. Now, how did this life with no king, how had it looked for the Israelites? Let's take a minute and review this. So God leads the Israelites out of Egypt with no brilliant tactical military plan, but like a crazy way where he leads them literally into a dead end into the Red Sea, and then he miraculously brings them through the Red Sea. This is not what any general would plan, right? He took the town of Jericho, like we said, with marching and shouting, and he showed Gideon, another guy he raised up, that he could defeat 132,000 enemy forces with just 300 men who were instructed to make a lot of noise by blowing trumpets and breaking jars. That would be very unconventional warfare, wouldn't you say? But completely effective. So you see, when the Israelites obeyed the Lord, they were always on the winning side. But somehow they, they forget this, and the obedience didn't continue. God had instructed them to eliminate the enemy completely in the land of Canaan, but instead they took on the characteristics of the world and this resulted in intermarriage and all kinds of idolatry. They had idolatry of all other gods. It's like, wait a minute, this crazy stuff that happened, did you forget how amazing that was? In Judges 17.6, it says this. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. Boy, we live in a time when everyone's doing what they see fit. Into this situation, God raised up Samuel to be a prophet who could bring to the people the counsel of the Lord. By the way, I think our pastor is a prophet very much, so we should treasure him. Clearly, the people didn't want to listen to that counsel. They were tired of being different than all the nations around them. They wanted a king, you know, somebody big, buff, like, like in the movie, right? They wanted some very imposing, tough guy. It's like God in the sky, like somewhere far away. No, I want someone right in front of me who could physically lead us against the enemies. They, like, did they forget all those times when God had led them in victory? But God relented. He gave them what he asked for. He allowed them to have a king. This brings me to the first point for us. We, too, want to follow a king we can see instead of following the Lord in our individual lives. So as we go back to our scripture, we see that the Lord, through Samuel, points out all the reasons why it wouldn't be good to have a king, and they want it anyway. So God lets them have what they want, and he even helps them with this at first. Now, the way I wanted to make a little aside here is that sometimes we make choices that are really dumb. Uh, people get married to people who are unbelievers. People get married when they've known someone for a month. They do all kinds of stuff that is not wise. But you know what? I know people who got married after a month who then set their lives about to following God, and he blessed them. So it's not like, oh, oops, once you make one bad pick, God dumps you. He does not. He wants it to go well. It's not like, eh, you're out. Wrong choice, eh, you're done. No, you know, you might make an initial wrong choice, but he blesses you thereafter. So anyway, he helps him pick this guy named Saul who looked really, you know, he looked tough. Like he could win a fight, or they think he could. But really what they want, they want to be like everyone else, 
and they want to ensure their own personal safety and security. This is really what it's all about. I want what's best for me. That also sounds familiar in an election cycle. I want what's best for me. It feels better to have someone tough at the helm instead of following God and his weirdo ways of doing things. I mean, he does things that are so unusual. So Saul is chosen king, and he's actually kind of overwhelmed about it at first and pretty humble, and he tries to follow the Lord. And for a while, it goes pretty well. It doesn't go badly because he's, he's humbling himself. But at some point, Saul really, really gets full of himself, like, hey, I'm the king. He gets puffed up with pride, and he forgets that he has a king over him. Well, as you might imagine, things go downhill from there. And the Israelites, for their part, what is their idol here? The idol isn't Saul. The idol is this idea, this idea of a monarchy. We're going to have a flesh and blood king, and that becomes their idol. So listen to that. I was studying for this, obviously, when I prepared. And in my NIV study Bible, you know, they have those little remarks. Here's this great remark. The people clamored for a king thinking that a new system of government would bring about a change in the nation. But because their basic problem was disobedience to God, their other problems would only continue under the new administration. What they needed was a unified faith, not a uniform rule. Ugh. If that doesn't hit you right where it counts, I don't know what will. Oh my gosh. Here in America, so many of us in the church are clamoring for a president we can see who could somehow, somehow make our lives more secure and make our society more decent as a whole. Who doesn't want that? I want that. But somehow we think that if we got someone who has a Christian agenda, then God will heal our nation. But we forget a couple of things. First of all, we can't expect people outside of the church to live like followers of Jesus. Right now, even people inside the church, by and large, don't look that different from the rest of the world at all. Like Pharisees, we're pointing out the sins of others while we are whitewashed sinners ourselves. Secondly, we forget that the Lord's church is a worldwide church. Pastor Isaac's off with uh, Pastor Gary in Ireland, right? It's a big world full of God's people. He calls each of us, wherever we are, all over the world, to be a part of his peculiar people, demonstrating his love not through any one strong empire, but through all those different lives in all those different places lived in love, humility, and service. They'll know we are one by our love. They'll know we are Christians by our love. Finally, we forget that what we're fighting are not political parties or even ideologies, but powers and principalities. Creating laws that we consider to be just is important, and I'm all for it, but it doesn't change hearts. We have certainly seen that recently. You can change a law, but you cannot change people's hearts with that law. I'm going to be really honest. It is much easier to think that you're being a good 
Christian by casting a vote for a person that you think is God's man or woman for the job than it is to actually change our own lives to reflect the loving ways of Jesus, to change our lives so markedly that other people would be drawn to us and thereby would be drawn into following him. Now, I'm all for trying to choose godly men and women for political office, if there were any to be had. But we mistakenly often think that the world is going to be saved or ruined by an election. God is in charge of history. I mean, we have to participate, but God is in charge of history. Let's listen to what Lee Camp says in his book, Scandalous Witness. If history is the scene of the unfolding of the good will of God, in which all wrongs shall be made right, and if this consummate hope of setting all things to rights has begun in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then to wed this hope to America, indeed to any nation state, is to bastardize that hope. The church must tell the truth and make clear the implications of the gospel that the United States of America, even with all its beauties, is not the hope of the world. Jesus is. Jesus is the hope of the world. Amen? Amen. Just imagine how the world could be truly changed if each of us who claim to be followers of Jesus would actually take Romans 12, 8 seriously. You guys remembered when we, whoever was here when we studied that last year and memorized that scripture? What if we were to be patient in tribulation? What if we would outdo one another in showing honor? What if we would live peaceably with all? What if we were ardent in zeal and showed hospitality to strangers? What if we did all those things? Now that would really be something. That would change the world. A vote is fine, but a vote isn't going to change the world. Back to the Israelites. Those old Israelites, we think they're so terrible and we're not any better. <laughs> That's the truth. As I said, Saul ends up on a downhill course. The Lord withdraws his spirit from him and he sends Samuel to anoint another king, one whom he has specifically chosen, as we saw in the video. And this brings us to point two. We want to follow a king who chooses like we do, right? We want a king we can see. We want him to pick like we pick. Because, you know, we anthropomorphize God. We make God like a human, and he became a human so we could get it. But he is not a human. He is so far above our ways. Now, I'm going to tell you, we tend to be very superficial in so many ways. We want the fastest, shiniest, biggest, brightest, most beautiful things. We want to know the people who have the most followers. Is that you, James? The most followers? I get to know him now. We want to know the influencers, right? We want to choose, and we want to be chosen, right? Have you ever been in a situation where teams were being chosen, and you were the last one? Well, guess what? This happened to me. First day of seventh grade. My family had just moved for the first and only time in my childhood from the south side of Chicago to the suburbs. I was the new kid, okay? 
So they were choosing teams for a spell down. You guys know what a spell down is? You spell words, and when you get one wrong, boom, you sit down, right? I'm the last one chosen, but what they didn't know was spelling is my superpower. <laughs> Ask my family, I correct everything. I correct signs and menus and blah. Anyway, spelling is my superpower, and I was like the last one standing. So, you know, I was like, great, this is fabulous, last one picked. So, I mean, this is like a brutal way of, of doing childhood, let kids assign worth to each other by picking. It's, it's not okay. But anyway, that happened, and I was the sad little person at the end. And then later in the day, one of my classmates, and I think this was some sort of awkward apology, comes up to me and literally says to me, oh, I'm sorry, we didn't pick you because we thought you looked stupid. <laughs> what do you say? Like, oh, oh, thank you? <laughs> I, I didn't know what to say. So later that same week, you know, hey, this girl can spell. Let's pick her for dodgeball teams. Another, another brutal thing in childhood. <laughs> and this also proved to be an error because I am the worst athlete I know and I was out right away. <laughs> we shouldn't judge people by their outward appearance, right? The Lord does not choose this way. We saw in the video, God shows David, the smallest, youngest, and ostensibly least important of Jesse's sons, but not in the eyes of God. The Lord tells Samuel this, for the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And the proof is in the pudding. It wasn't long before a challenge arrived. That would show exactly what the hearts were of David and Saul. The Israelites were confronted by their longtime enemy, the Philistines, and with them, they had a champion, a giant named Goliath. Now, remember that the Israelites, why did they want a monarchy? That, this is why they wanted it. They wanted the strong, big, buff guy in the front to fight the big bullies. That's what they wanted, but Saul wasn't going to do it. He knew he would lose. Listen to what a pastor that I read said about this. When we try out idolatry, God has a remarkable way of making our idols powerless before the very fears that created them in the first place. So when we idolize our health, when we get sick, we have no idea what to do. When we idolize our job and think that's the way for safety, security, and identity, when we lose it, we don't, we don't know who we are. But God can fashion our lives and our identities into something completely new. God used Goliath to confront the fears of the Israelites and to show them that there wasn't any military might, no manly king, no human strength that was a match for God. Saul didn't understand. But David, on the other hand, understood completely that the battle wasn't up to him in his own strength. He understood that God fought in different ways and that the battle belonged to the Lord. Listen to what David says to Goliath in 1 Samuel. Every time I hear this, I think of the veggie tales with David the giant pickle. 
You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And as the Bible tells us, the Lord takes Goliath down with a rock from David's slingshot. David doesn't say to Goliath, I'm going to get you. No, he says, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. He doesn't claim to have his own strength. He gets it. Oh, is that better? Thank you. The battle belongs to the Lord. He understands that God's ways are better than we do. And that's why, despite his many failings, David is called a man after God's own heart. Because he gets it. He's not perfect. He screws up a lot. But he understands that God's ways are higher than our ways. And he tries to follow those ways. He does it imperfectly. We named our youngest son David after this man of God's own heart. He trusts God and his higher crazy ways sometimes. I want to be like that, don't you? So I wanted to give you a more contemporary example. Sometimes when I'm reading the Bible and I'm reading stories about thousands of years ago, it can feel like, well, you know, that's a cool story, but, how, you know, doesn't seem to apply right now. So I wanted to give you an example of God still making choices that are very, very different than we would make looking at outward appearances. Got a picture? This is a baby with no arms and no legs. This is someone's baby. What if this were your baby, your son, your brother, your nephew? When you look at this picture, some of you may be moved to tears. Well, this is Nick Vujicic. He was born in 1982 to parents in Australia who were absolutely shocked when he was born. I guess they didn't have ultrasound where they lived or something. They were so shocked they couldn't even hold him at first. Out comes this baby with no arms and no legs. And they felt deep, deep hopelessness and grief. What kind of life will this boy have? But God had special plans for this boy that no one could have imagined. Listen to what Nick himself says about his youth. I was very angry at God, and I said, God, if you're real and you love me, where's my miracle? So then I started doubting that he was real, and I said, God, you owe me an explanation. At age 15, God clearly answered me through John chapter 9 about the question of why. Jesus came across a man who was born blind, and Jesus said he was born that way so that the works of God would be revealed through him, and faith came over me. Tangibly, I felt peace. And Nick was raised in faith by his parents. They raised him as normally as they possibly could, and he grew up to be a truly amazing man. He has a very vibrant life. He does all sorts of things like swim and surf and golf. And still, he thought he might have to go through life alone because what woman would be with a man like me, he thought, 
to, to put up with this very, very significant degree of disability. But he met a woman who fell very much in love with him. And this is his beautiful wife and his beautiful family. And even more amazingly, Nick has become an author, a motivational speaker, and an evangelist who has spoken to millions of people. You put that picture up. All around the world by spreading the only true hope that is found in Jesus. He actually spoke at Foursquare Convention a couple years ago in Seattle, and one of our grandkids heard him in person. When you looked at that first picture, could you have imagined this? That this would become of this child. God does not look at outward appearances. He looks at the heart. His ways are so much more than any of us can imagine if we trust him. And that brings me to my final point. Jesus is the only king worth following. The only king worth following. God went to great lengths to show his people that his ways might have been really different, but they were for all of his people. You didn't have to be strong or smart or tall. If you trusted in the Lord and followed his way for your life, you were automatically on the winning team. That's all you had to do was trust him. And God's unusual ways didn't end when he sent the promised Messiah. The entire Bible is all about speaking of a coming king, a Messiah who will reign forever. Every story whispers his name. 2 Samuel 7.16 says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. He's, God is making this promise to David. Your throne shall be established forever. Every story whispers his name. The angel Gabriel came to Mary to tell her that she was going to have a son. This baby would be the king that generations had been longing for and waiting for. Throughout all of history, the angel said this in Luke chapter 1. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So finally, there would be a king who would reign forever. The long wait was over. But guess what? A teeny-weeny baby came, the teeny-weeny true king who grew up to say really hard and really weird things about loving your enemies and turning the other cheek. A baby who grew up not to overthrow the government, but to teach us a way of radical love. Again, not what anyone was expecting. So once again, the religious majority, they just didn't get it at all. They were expecting to overthrow the government. The disciples who were closest to Jesus, they didn't even get it. They thought that God's way would be to establish a political kingdom that would overthrow Rome. Not only did that not happen, but even greater disasters struck. Think about this. God became a man so we could understand how much he loved us. But rather than bowing to this king who had come to earth, the crowds mocked him. 
They spat on him. Instead of putting a crown of honor on his head, they pressed a crown of thorns in his head. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests, those who had studied the word of God, those who supposedly knew, they said, we have no king but Caesar. And all those people there who had said they were following him, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. All those years, years of longing and waiting. And when the son of David, the true king, actually came, they didn't want him. What about us? Do we want him? Or do we have other kings in mind? In the ultimate surprise ending of what Pastor Isaac calls God's judo love, God ends up using the very death of Jesus on the cross, which looked like a defeat, to declare the ultimate victory over sin and death when he rose from the dead three days later. So what looked at first like an incredible loss turned out to be the biggest win in all of history, in all of the world, ever. And that win was for you, and that win was for me. God's unusual plan of uniting us to himself through the free gift of salvation is available to absolutely everyone. You only need to accept the gift and declare Jesus to be king of your life. So before we head into communion, we're going to look at some application points. First, I'm going to poke at you a little harder now. <laughs> You're like, oh, great. <laughs> I want you to seriously take some time to think about your prayer life. Do you pray to tell the Lord how to do his job? You know, I've got this and that in mind and do this and that and this is when I want it done by. Or do you pray with an open heart? Scripture does tell us to ask and we should ask. But can you entertain the possibility that the Lord might want to do something in a way that was weird and that you had never thought of? that will be, turn out to be beyond all you can ask or imagine. When I was in medical school, a very, very healthy person, and my king was education, I thought I would spend the rest of my life being a doctor. This is a good thing, it's not a bad thing, right? I'm gonna serve being a doctor I could have never, ever imagined that I would be so very, very sick for so very, very long, have to quit medicine, could barely do my duties as a mom, right? And that God would heal me and restore me so I could be standing here today and talking to you. And just for you, Patrick, I had to use a wheelchair before. I was in a wheelchair for a long time. So for people who don't know, anybody who wants to hear my long story, happy to tell it. It's God's amazing story. 
I would have never, never planned that for my life. I had no idea this was coming, and I wouldn't trade it for anything, not even the sickness. Number two, think about whether you're a person who seeks wise counsel. Do you stay humble when you gather information to make a decision? Do you stay grounded in the word of God, in the scriptures every day to give you truth in this very confusing world? Do you make an appointment with our pastor to talk about decisions? You guys, he loves us so much. And he's sad when people don't come and talk to him to talk things over. He's not going to tell you what to do. He will pray with you. He will sit with you. He will counsel you from the word. It is a gift. And if you're thinking about big decisions, make an appointment. Go see him. He would be delighted to be part of that. Do you ask your friends to pray about hard situations or do you try to figure everything out on your own? I am the leader of Stephen Ministry. If you're a Stephen Minister, raise your hand. All these awesome people in here, we are constantly messaging each other with prayer requests. This is the best praying bunch of people I've ever known in my life. Constantly connecting to do life in prayer together because we don't have the answers. We don't know everything. Third, I want you to think about whether you're reluctant to accept that God's choice of people or events may not look at all like the world's choice or your choice. So I was thinking maybe some of you, if you're visiting and you're like, they let women preach there? Kind of like an older lady who hasn't gone to Bible college? <laughs> but God had me here today with a message for you. Not because I'm so great, but because he enabled me we believe very much in children, youth, all kinds of people being enabled by God. But more importantly, I want to ask you today, do you disqualify yourself? Because you're too young, too old, not educated enough, not this enough, not that enough, not, you know, too busy, too this, too that. No. God wants each person in his kingdom to be part of the renewal of the world. You can be part of advancing his kingdom as well. And finally, I want you to think about who or what is your true king. Now, I don't mean just people. And we talked some about politics and political parties and things like that. But I mean all kinds of things. Maybe Christian culture is your king. This is, I'm guilty of this sometimes. I listen to Christian radio. I read Christian books, you know, da, da, da. I do all this stuff. But what is my true king? Am I spending time with the true king? If you want to know what your king is, think about where your time, your money, and your attention go. Your house, your cars, your stuff, your family, your friends. Remember when Pastor James told us about you live for your friends on Saturday night? What's your Saturday night? Is that Saturday night still your king? What about your education, your job? Your job is everything, right? Maybe a substance rules your life that you can't do without. Maybe a video game that you're always repeatedly going back to, addicted to. Maybe you are a news junkie and news is your king because you need to be informed because the world will stop spinning on its axis if you don't know everything that's happening. 
Maybe it's your appearance. Maybe CrossFit is your king. Maybe your health. We have many, many substitute kings in our lives. Now, even though I hammered a bit on politics today because, you know, we're going into an election cycle, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying you shouldn't vote or you shouldn't participate in politics. Just don't expect the government to be the way to turn hearts to the Lord or to his commandments. That's not going to happen. Your witness as loving followers is more influential than anything else you could do, than any Facebook post would ever do. So now, you know, my husband and I, we're not very political, but somebody said, hey, can you guys have a meet and greet the future mayor of Silverton, you know, running for mayor in your backyard? Sure. So we're being political. We're having a town hall thing in our backyard where people can meet somebody who might be mayor of Silverton. Well, just be gracious and kind. And that is how we can represent our king. And by way of confession, if we're talking about kings, for me personally, it would be my family, my husband, our parents, my kids. This consumes me, consumes my life. And even though it sounds good, it's not appropriate. It should not be in first place. So as we head to communion together, I'm going to ask you to join me in a prayer of confession. We're going to confess to the Lord who or what has taken his rightful place as king in our lives and going to put Jesus back on the throne. And the good news, if you put Jesus back on the throne, you can stop trying to have everything in control. You don't have to control every circumstance, every situation. You can take a breath of relief and know that there is a just and loving king who will lead us through history and can lead you through your life.